This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. How do we explain the increasing militarization of U.S. foreign policy? Why is America losing the moral compass it held not long ago? Critics of these ominous trends have identified a number of culprits. Big oil, the cabal of neoconservatives, the war presidency of George Bush, the Israeli lobby, and the cultural fascination with military force as a sign of national greatness. Without denying the contributory role of these factors, our guest today, Ismael Hossein Zadeh, explores the bigger but largely submerged picture of profit-driven forces of war in his new book, The Political Economy of U.S. Militarism. An Iranian-born Kurd, Hossein Zadeh is a professor of economics at Drake University. Ismail Hossein Zadeh, welcome to Weekly Signals. Well, thank you. Uh, happy New Year's to you and uh, your listeners. Yeah, well, happy Happy New Year to you, too. Uh, how is it there in uh, in Iowa today? Are you cold? It is very cold. It has been a uh, an earlier, uh, early arrived uh, winter and uh, much colder than usual. Yeah, are, are you looking forward to the uh, caucuses? <laughs> well, of course, we are looking forward to the caucuses and to the end of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can, can, you, uh, can you turn on the TV without seeing a political commercial right now? Not really. <laughs> no, no, I can't imagine. No, uh, it's, it's uh, wall to wall. airwaves are inundated with uh, political commercials. Yes, I can and imagine. And even the phone, our phones are not left alone. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I do not like that at all. I don't know how you feel about it, but I, I, I feel intruded upon by that. I, I, I do enough information uh, consumption without having them call me at 8 at night, but that's, I'm just going on. Uh, you begin your book, <laughs> The uh, politic, Political Economy of U.S. Militarism, uh, with a quote from uh, President Eisenhower's farewell address where he says, In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. How much has that uh, military-industrial complex grown and taken things over since Eisenhower's warning? Well, I think... Uh that prophetic warning has unfortunately come uh, to pass. It has yes. come true. Um, for the time being, uh, I think our foreign policy, especially issues of war and peace, are determined largely by the Pentagon and its contractors, by the so-called military-industrial complex. Uh, for example, uh, more than 50%, about 58 cents out of every dollar in the new year, year 2008, of the discretionary budget will go to Pentagon, and only 44% or 44 cents will go to the rest of social spending, which includes everything, health, education, housing, transportation, the environment, you name it. So, uh, and it is this huge uh, uh, money and massive profits which I think are driving uh, recent uh, wars of choice. And, and that's how you look at them. They, they, uh, 
the the wars since what would you say since World War Two have been wars of choice? Do you have a do you if you broke it? Would you break it down for us? Well, surely. Well, the military-industrial complex grew uh, uh, gradually uh, immediately after World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is under, although there was a uh, short period of demobilization between the end of the war in 1945 and late 1940s, that is 1948, 49, 50. But uh, um, uh, but uh, beneficiaries of uh, of war dividends, I mean uh, those who benefit from arms industry, mobilized and uh, and uh, used the threat of communism under President Truman. And uh, once again, uh, after that ephemeral uh, demobilization, raised the Pentagon budget uh, to a new height. And that continued until, uh, has continued almost uh, unabated. But as long as the Soviet Union existed and uh, mm-hmm. and under threat of communism, whether real or perceived, was there uh, this uh, danger, uh, this dangerous uh, tendency to war and militarism by uh, by war profiteers was masked by that uh, by the existence of, of the Soviet Union. But after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, I don't know if you remember, uh-huh. uh, there was such excitement about uh, uh, the so-called peace dividends, right. meaning a redirection or reorientation of part of the Pentagon budget towards uh, more useful uh, social uh, needs. But then uh, that, of course, scared those who benefit from war dividends versus peace dividends. <laughs> yeah. And they mobilized uh, in the early uh, 1990s uh, to, um, uh, to come up with new uh, threats yes. or perceived threats to, to U.S. national interests. And, uh, and, and they came up with all kinds of uh, these so-called new threats like the rogue states, Islamic, radic- uh, Islamic radicalism, uh, you know, decontextualize global uh, terrorism and right. then uh, access of evil. So it is no uh, accident that all these new enemies and this long list of new lexicon came to existence in the aftermath of the collapse of, of the Berlin Wall. Mm-hmm. So it is only after the collapse of the Berlin Wall that uh, the role of the military-industrial complex has become more... Uh, has become somewhat uh, unmasked and clear mm-hmm. uh, compared to the previous period. Right. So what I what I what I believe I'm I'm hearing you say is is that since World War II and beyond, because there was a period uh, right after World War II when it looked like there would be an opening for demilitarization. The war was over. The uh, the threats to the United States were uh, certainly uh, limited and not not really something that would threaten us uh, as a country. Um, but it wasn't long after that that this sort of military-industrial complex that Eisenhower uh, was spoke of began to regroup. Exactly. And started to uh, sort of re- retrench uh, and looked at the Cold War as an opportunity. And I think, as, as you say in your book, uh, the Soviets were not the threat they were portrayed to be, 
Uh, and rarely were they a real threat to the United States, and yet this was a, a pretext to allow this this massive part of our economy to continue to flourish. Well, that's my uh, that's my reading and and the result of my research. In yeah. fact, I have uh, uh, I have shown uh, 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 you know uh, uh, undeniable evidence right. in in chapter four of my book. Not only by uh, you know uh, opponents of war, but uh, from official U.S. authorities, who time and again saying that Stalin, the head of the Soviet Union at the time, was desperate for peaceful coexistence because the Soviet Union lost uh, anywhere between 20 and 25 million people, and the, their economy was in shambles as a result of, a result of the war, and they were in no position to uh, get on a in a competition, military, uh, military rivalry with the, with, the, with the United States. Right. So there were all these uh, official test- testimonials that the Soviet Union, uh, headed by Stalin, was truly uh, interested in uh, in peaceful coexistence. But uh, peace, uh, peace then as as now, is not good for the business of war. Right. Uh-huh. Well, what I what I want to get to because it does seem like you're we're we're kind of poking around the edges of what I what I what I've read uh, in your writing is that there is what the what the Soviets represented wasn't a military threat to the United States. It had to do more of a, an economic threat in the sense that the Soviet Union was a regimented economy and the United States was not. And this was seen as a greater threat than they would pose as a military. Exactly, uh, that's that's a key point. In fact, I'm uh, this uh, is I'm surprised that you use the term that I have used in my book, uh, quoting uh, President Eisenhower, who said, "The threat to our democracy and our market system is regimented economies." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's an exact quote. That's that, that's true, uh, and uh, so, and it is for that reason. That, uh, for example, today uh, we are trying to strangle Cuba, which is in no <laughs> no threat to the United States, except that it it is a bad uh, um, it's a bad uh, economy for us in terms of uh, well, uh, it is a term I'm looking for uh, a bad model, let's say. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, from the viewpoint of uh, of the wealthy and uh, let's say capitalist class. Right. So it is that model, that pattern that tends to benefit uh, ordinary citizens, which is perceived, uh, which is viewed as as dangerous, well, much more than uh, military power. Right, and and I, I guess going back to to that point, which is that that what we're talking about in a regimented economy, as opposed to uh, what we see as the what we call the free market economy of the West, is that. Uh, it does. The regimented economy does not allow for this sort of free flow of capital, uh, back and forth, op- economic and investment opportunities, where the, the Soviets were able to, by what I read in your book, were able to withstand. Uh, were, were basically the depression didn't affect them the same way it did the rest of the world. There were a lot of there were a lot of economic trends that the Soviet Union and other, I guess, regimented economies were able to withstand uh, the outside pressures from. Uh, and 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 we were not, and this is a, considered a threat to the basic economic system. Am I re- am I reading that correctly? Yes, you are. Uh, that's exactly uh, 
what uh, what happened. I mean, uh, at the time that uh, not only the U.S. economy but the entire Western economies, market economy, market economies were uh, uh, embroiled and paralyzed by the Great Depression and then by the war. The Soviet economy, because by virtue of its planning uh, mechanism, uh, weathered or withstood both the depression and and and, and the war. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, to be uh, to be exact or uh, to be fair, uh, the standard of living was low. We don't want to make uh, yeah. uh, to, to exaggerate that. But the fact is that nobody went hungry or unemployed or homeless. Right. And uh, that made the Soviet system uh, very popular at, at that time. You know, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, uh, every day there were uh, hundreds of thousands of, of demonstrations, mostly by unions and working people who were, uh, who were uh, at times very radical and asking for, uh, for social changes right. because of that popularity of centrally planned economies. We're speaking with uh, Ismail Hassan Zadeh. His book is The Political Economy of U.S. Materialism. Uh, oh, militarism. Militarism, yes. <laughs> Very good. Uh, I was wondering, do, do arms manufacturers use war as a marketing opportunity? I, that's what I'm starting to see. I'm not looking at this so much as historical. as I, I think it's almost gotten commercial in in. in the present day, in the, especially in the last eight years. I had the feeling that the shock and awe that we saw in Baghdad was, was almost like a, a commercial for a General Motors SUV. That, once again, is exactly uh, what I think uh, yeah. to be the case. Yeah. That is, at a time of uh, tight budgets and contested uh, uh, dollars, proponents of... Uh, of military spending or of increases in military spending need to show uh, uh, the American people that they are not wasting their their monies, their tax dollars. Yeah. And 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 uh, the way to show that is through the uh, destructive power of military hardware by all these surgical laser guided technologies and as what as you said by the. Uh, demonstration of shock and awe of the military prowess and military technology. So, uh, uh, but, uh, of course, it is uh, tragic and, and sad that, uh, that the efficiency of, of military uh, hardware has to be proven at the expense of lives and, and, and destruction yes. of property and, and societies. Well, it it is in fact uh, the yeah the, these uh, the war, especially the beginning of the, the the first Gulf War and the second the second war in in Iraq, uh, especially w- with the the CNN coverage and that the sort of twenty four hour coverage and the the laser guided stuff flying around in the sky it does feel like a giant arms bazaar uh, and uh, and a big commercial for these gigantic companies that produce this armament and we. We seem to have gotten very, very good at this. And what well, is what is equally disturbing? I just want to finish this one point. What's equally disturbing about it is is that we've gotten so good at destroying things that we're now in the business of constructing things, and that's all part of what we're talking about this this military economy. Is that is that is that a fair assessment? 
we're actually we're actually oh, oh, I'm sorry I missed your last well, well, we're, we're, we're actually we're, we're actually you said we're actually destroying things in order to build them back up right right exactly well uh, <clears throat> excuse me well that can be called uh, uh, first deconstruction or destruction and then uh, reconstruction uh, because there is uh, money to be made in both deconstruction or destruction yeah and then in uh, in, in reconstruction uh, so, uh, of course, uh, the, the, the destruction part of that is obvious to see because uh, 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 Pentagon contractors uh, constantly need to, uh, to replenish uh, and, and uh, their, their uh, stock of armaments, and that's how they can have their, uh, their factories to churn out uh, armaments 24 hours a day. Yeah. But then uh, their uh, partners and, uh, and other military uh, contractors or Pentagon contractors uh, simultaneously, sometimes even ahead of time, in the case of Iraq, most of these uh, so-called reconstruction uh, contractors, they set up shop in Baghdad even before the first wave of attacks were over in order to... Uh, and they got into these... Uh, uh, there's a number of a multitude of contracts, mostly basically tax dollars, uh, U.S. Uh, money, mm-hmm. and to so-called uh, rebuild what what uh, we destroy in the first place. Mm-hmm. And the irony of that is that <coughs> rebuilding is uh, often uh, not done as as they promise, right? Uh, and that has become uh, notorious. Uh, so it is for that reason, for the reason of basically robbing U.S. Treasury of tax dollars uh, money, that currently we have almost as many uh, contractors, that is the personnel of contractors, as we have military force, close to 140,000 personnel belonging to uh, different kinds of contractors are now in Baghdad. Right, I understand. It's almost a a one for run now in uh, in 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 Iraq. Right now, and what is? Uh-huh. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say that uh, uh, even assuming that they are doing uh, uh, reconstruction, um, uh, which they don't, but even assuming that all that is coming about at the expense of neglecting reconstruction at home. Yeah, most of our infrastructure. Uh, roads, bridges, levees, are languishing as a result of neglect and, and uh, lack of repair. So right. that's what's called sometimes, uh, you know, opportunity cost of, of monetary spending. We're speaking with Ismail Hussein today, and I just wanted to, you're sitting in, uh, in Iowa right now, in the midst of a presidential campaign, and this is a tr- a huge part of our economy it's a huge part of what the the way we make our way in the world this political economy of of militarism how many if any of the presidential candidates have you heard even uh, begin to address this as an issue has anyone stepped up and said anything about this well uh, uh except uh, Dennis Kucinich yeah uh, others just uh, they are not uh, facing the problem uh, squarely and, and uh, seriously. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, the issue of war and 
And uh, the pullout of U.S. forces has, in recent days and weeks, been pushed uh, aside in Des Moines, which has its uh, carcasses soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, uh, to the extent that some candidates talk about uh, pulling out uh, uh, our forces from Iraq, it is uh, totally uh, uh, ineffectual and, and uh, just for the record. You see, uh, these candidates, uh, these presidential candidates talk, talk about uh, the problem of war and, and the rest of it, and yet... How can you uh, cure a problem without looking at at the and the illness, what caused of it? Right. In other words, you cannot have a a uh, an effective prognosis right. unless you have a good diagnosis. Right. And that diagnosis calls for accountability and perhaps even impeachment. Right. And everybody's avoiding that except as far as I know, except uh, Dennis Kucinich. Well, it sounds like the, what, the way you're describing it, it sounds like the war in Iraq is a symptom and no one is talking about the, the illness itself, which is this idea that we have become a garrison state. We're on, certainly on our way to becoming a garrison state in America, uh, whose, whose first order of economy is, is, is to build massive weapon systems. Exactly. Uh, you're right. It's a symptom. It's uh, none of the presidential candidates. Uh, I think no president can effectively curtail the power of, of Pentagonized contractors. The reason is that uh, even, a, even if we assume that a radical uh, uh, candidate gets elected, like uh, Dennis Kucinich, uh, still, they, it, uh, he will be outmaneuvered by, uh, by uh, some tactics or some, for example, the military coming up uh, 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 with a report, you know, a fake report that, for example, uh, Iran is uh, selling ammunition to uh, insurgents mm-hmm. that is killing our soldiers. And therefore, since it's killing our soldiers, we are, in war at, we are at war with Iran. Mm-hmm. And no president can resist that. So you're right. I mean, uh, the resident of the White House has a minimal or marginal effect on issues of war and peace and, and military spending. Well, how do we go about getting out of this situation then? Because it almost sounds like we're locked into it. The only way out is something almost revolutionary. Do you, do you have any suggestions how to dismantle this uh, military-industrial complex? Well, you're right. It is... Uh, uh, it is a very, uh, it's a very sad and perverse way of uh, having our economy become dependent on military spending. And I don't want to, uh, you know, to sound simplistic or reductionist by saying that uh, uh, this uh, continuous increase in military spending is all due to the power of contractors or Pentagon or military industrial complex. It is also because of the fact that millions of jobs and businesses have become to become dependent on military spending right. and as a result nobody even the most ardent opponent of war that is uh, on the basis of uh, let's say phil- uh, ideology or philosophy even such uh, radical uh, politicians could not oppose military spending because that will cost jobs and businesses in their constituencies and a, and a political constituency also exactly. all these exactly. people vote so that's why I think uh, uh, it has to be a long-term uh, solution uh, so that gradually 
monetary spending is redirected in a very calculated and coordinated on a national basis towards non-monetary spending. In other words, yeah. if Iowa takes, let's say, $3 billion from the Pentagon each year for, uh, for contracts, uh, that money cannot be curtailed because people lose jobs and businesses. That can be redirected, let's say, half of that to, to building schools, bridges, and so on. Right. So, yeah, this is a very delicate and long-term... Uh, it, it is, and unfortunately we've run uh, out of time here. Ismail, um, I'm going to leave you with a quote. I'm going to leave our listeners with a quote from your book, which I think sums this up very well. This was uh, something said by a general, Smedley D. Butler. There are only two things we should fight for. One is the defense of our homes, and the other is the Bill of Rights. War, for any other reason, is simply a racket. Right. And I Late think- General Smedley Butler. He also said that any reform of monetary spending can be, uh, can be very uh, essentially minimal. And he said an effective way would be to take money or profits out of armament industry. In other words, yeah. arms industry should be owned and operated by the government, not corporations. Well, I, I agree with that, and I want to thank you so much for being here on Weekly Signals. The book is The Political Economy of U.S. Militarism, Ismail Hussein Sadeh. Thank you so much for being here today. I thank you for the opportunity. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.